I'd ask if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, verses 15 to, excuse me, verses 11 to 25, which is going to be our passage for study this morning. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. And when you have that, if you're able, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word as I read this passage for us. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son, whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites. And God knew. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. We think about this incident in the life of Moses, and more especially, the good plan that God had for Moses' life as he sought to prepare him to be the one who would rescue the people. And as I thought about that, I thought about American missionaries Adoniram and his wife Ann Judson, who arrived in Burma in 1813. When they arrived, they had no idea that it would be six years before they saw their first convert. And those six years were filled with great difficulty. Uh, They were filled with the hard work of learning the language and culture of the Burmese people. They were filled with the agony of regular fevers and illnesses. It was filled with the sadness of the loss of one child who died stillborn at sea and of another child who only lived eight months. There was a lot of suffering in those six years of waiting. But, but there was also great preparation. Again, for one thing, what they did is they gave themselves assiduously to learning the Burmese culture and language so that they were able to accurately and clearly communicate the gospel in the heart language of the people so that they would be impacted by that gospel. But more than that, they were prepared in their own hearts, and most especially, they were, they were prepared to depend not on themselves, but on God who gives the growth. You see, it did take six years Six years of sowing, six years of praying, six years of tears, six years of waiting for God to act. And even their supporters back in the States began to ask questions of them. You know, what prospect is there that the Burmese people are going to receive Christ? Well, Adoniram responded this way to that request. He said, even though Burma is a hard and resistant place, there is an almighty and faithful God who will perform his promises. In the midst of the waiting, 
the Judsons were being prepared for a ministry, for a blessing that was come, that would come. And they were, they were learning to rely on God. In our passage for study this morning, we see the way God prepared another one of his servants, Moses. That preparation lasted not six years, but 80 years. For the first 40 years of his life, Moses lived among Pharaoh's household in Egypt, and he learned and became skilled in all the knowledge of the Egyptians. But even after 40 years, Moses' preparation wasn't complete. There was more that he needed to learn. He would need to spend another 40 years in the wilderness before he was ready to lead the people of God out of their slavery in Egypt and to the promised land. And most especially, he needed to learn just one lesson. He needed to learn humility. He needed to learn how to be nothing. He needed to learn to depend on God to do the work. And that is a lesson we must all learn if we would serve God well in this life. We must learn to be nothing so that God may be all in us. We'll see this as we study God's Word together this morning. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus last time. We looked at chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 10, and there we saw that God used four faith-filled women to overcome and to thwart the plans of the most powerful king of that time, Pharaoh. Most especially, though, we focused our hearts on, on God's mighty providence of his ability to work circumstances together in just the right way at just the right time to accomplish his perfect purposes in this world. It is an unseen hand, but it is a mighty and glorious hand. And by his mighty and glorious hand, he perfectly arranged circumstances in order to save the nation of Israel from annihilation and also to save the future leader of that nation, Moses. Well, in verses 11 to 25, our passage for study this morning, we see what happened when Moses grew up. Moses turns his back on the riches of Egypt, and that is a remarkable thing. He turned his back on the riches of Egypt in order to side with God's people and even to enter into suffering with them. He wanted to help them. The problem, as we will see in this passage, is that he went about helping them the wrong way. He tried to do it on his own, with his own might, with his own wisdom, with his own resources. And as a result, it would be another 40 years before Moses was prepared by God to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. If you're taking notes as we study chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, we're going we're gonna to have three points this morning. Three points if you're taking notes. Three points from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. First, we're going to see a failed rescuer. We'll see that in verses 11 to 15, a failed rescuer. Second, we're going to see a restless wanderer. We're going to see that in verses 16 to 22. And third, we're going to see a compassionate Savior. And we'll see that when we look at verses 23 to 25. Let's look at that first point then together, a failed rescuer. In 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte led his grand army into Russia on a mission to conquer the nation and to force Tsar Alexander I to the table to negotiate, but the invasion was doomed to failure. It was really a brilliant strategy by the Russians. You see, the Russians offered absolutely no resistance to Napoleon's army. And so he rushed further and further into Russia, but ultimately his downfall was that he rushed past his own lines. He rushed past his ability to replenish his troops. He outran his supply. And the, res the result was, ultimately, Napoleon had to retreat. And in the brutal winter of Russia, hundreds of thousands of his troops died because he lacked the supplies he needed because he had rushed ahead. Well, in our passage, verses 11 to 15, Moses is acting as a rescuer 
rather than a conqueror, but he fails for exactly the same reason that Napoleon failed. Uh, Napoleon rushed ahead of his supply line, but Moses here rushes ahead of God, and he tries to do things on his own. He had to learn that apart from God, he could do nothing. Look at verses 11 to 15 again. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Last week, when we left Moses, he was a child growing up in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, surrounded by power. He was a prince. As a prince, as he grew up, he would have had an extensive education, one preparing him to be a ruler and a leader. He would have learned, Stephen tells us in chapter 7 of Acts, all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That would have included studying law, studying military combat. That would have included administration and the practices of the nations which surrounded Egypt. And as a result of his training, Moses grew up into a very impressive individual. Uh, Stephen lets us know that in Acts chapter 7 when he says that Moses was powerful in speech and in actions. Moses was a, a mover and a shaker. He was an influencer. He was someone who commanded respect. He was rich and intelligent and powerful. You see, he, he seemed to have all that he could have ever wanted in Egypt. But Moses wasn't satisfied. Everything for Moses wasn't enough. As the years rolled by, Moses began to feel a growing discontent in his soul. Sure, he was prosperous, but what about his people? Well, they were suffering. They were enslaved, and every day he goes out and he sees his people under the lash, his people suffering, and he just couldn't get past the fact that the Israelites were suffering day after day as slaves. And the first part of verse 11, you see what happened. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and observed their forced labor. Years later, there is actually 40 years old. He was 40 years old when he went out to observe or to watch. And really the idea is to, to watch with concern, uh, to watch with some idea that I, I need to do something. I need to help in this situation. And when he observed what was happening, he was moved to compassion. But you see, it was more than compassion. It was also indignation at the injustice that he saw. He saw the way they were being treated as, as a little more than cattle, uh, using human souls as nothing more than property, like animals. Moses hated how his people, and, and remember, including his own family, how his own family was being treated as slaves in Egypt. And so Moses was very much facing a personal identity crisis. Is he going to continue to live in Egypt and enjoy all the riches of Egypt? Or is he going to turn his back on Egypt and suffer that loss in order to enter into the sufferings of his people? Well, you see the answer in verse 11 to 12. Uh, he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people, and looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. And this is a decisive moment in the life of Moses. This is where he crosses the Rubicon. This is where he cast his lot in with the people of Israel. 
Uh, this is where he tries to act as a rescuer now, siding with the people of Israel, God's people against the Egyptians. But notice that by doing it in his own power, with his own wisdom, he ends up a murderer. And he has to bury the dead body of his victim in the sand. Well, the next day, Moses saw two Israelites fighting and he tried to reconcile them. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? But this man who was in the wrong, he turned on Moses and he asked some very good questions. Who made you a commander and judge over us? Are you planning to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Those were good questions. You see, actually, no one had authorized Moses to act as a rescuer of his people. No one had given him authority to do that. He was acting proudly. He was acting in his own authority. And even more, that, that second question there, it called out Moses for the sin that he had committed. You see, Moses was now a murderer, one who had taken the life of someone made in God's image. Now, when Moses heard these questions, he, he became afraid. You see, he realized that his attempts to conceal his sin were ineffective. Uh, perhaps the man he saved had gone, and you can understand this, had gone and began to talk about how, how Moses had rescued him. And that news had spread around the Israelite camp. And so Moses knew it was only a matter of time before Pharaoh and the officials of Egypt learned what had happened. And of course, that time came very quickly. Verse 15 tells us that when Pharaoh heard about Moses' actions, he tried to kill Moses. Why? Well, Pharaoh didn't want competition. He didn't want an insurrection among his slaves. He didn't want a leader of an insurrection. And so he said, I'm just going to kill Moses. Moses at this point had no choice but to run for his life. And look what happens. He flees from Pharaoh's presence. He ends up in Midian and he sits down by a well and he is a beaten man. All of his plans have failed. Now he's a man without a country. Now he's a man without a people. Now he's a man without a home. More than that, he's without direction. What's he supposed to do in the wilderness? And so he sat down by a well in utter defeat. Now looking at this passage, let me make three observations before we move on. First, notice that Moses was a man of faith. Uh, you see, turning his back on Egypt and siding with God's people... That was a very significant act on Moses' part. He was losing a lot. Uh, he grew up in courts of power. He knew how the Egyptians looked upon their slaves. He knew that they looked at them as little more than property, not even humans. Really, they, they compared them to the living dead or to donkeys. And at the same time, the Egyptian rulers, well, they lived lavish lifestyles of ease there in Egypt. One Egyptian inscription describes the ruling class's lavish lifestyle this way. You call for one a thousand answer you. You stride freely on the road. You will not be like a hired ox. You are in front of others. Now, friends, inciting with uh, the Israelites, Moses is giving up riches and fame and status. He's giving up three things that most people on earth are living for. He's giving up things that many people would be willing to kill for. So what enabled Moses to turn his back on the best of Egypt in order to side with the oppressed and enslaved people? Well, friends, the answer is faith. It might surprise you, having just read those verses, to think about Moses as a man of faith. But actually, uh, the inspired author in Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that that was precisely what was motivating Moses at this point, that he had faith. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. Now, by faith, Moses realized that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, was the true God, and all of the gods of the Egyptians were false. And by faith, he realized that God had made good promises to the people of Israel. And so, in light of faith, it was better to suffer with them now so that he might enjoy blessing with them when God blessed them. Even though the fleeting pleasures of sin, and they are fleeting, right? There's pleasure there, but it's fleeting. Even though the fleeting pleasures of sin were, were so abundant in Egypt. Most especially, I love this about this passage in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses realized that the Messiah would come through the Israelites. What is his faith focused on? It's focused on the coming one, the Messiah. He considered the sufferings of Christ to be better than the fleeting pleasures of Egypt and of sinning in Egypt. He knew that through the Messiah, blessing would come to all the world. And so he sided with God's people. It was faith that motivated Moses' actions by faith, he, he looked past the, the ease of Egypt and of living for sin, and he looked to eternity. And he saw that it was far better to side with God and with the people of God. A second observation, Moses was a failure. You can't help but see that in these verses, verses 11 to 15. That's what's happening here. Uh, Moses apparently assumed that his people would understand that God would give them victory if they would follow him. You know, perhaps his position of power there in Egypt you know, caused him to think that, well, I'm influential. Certainly the people will listen to me and want to follow me. And so he steps out on his own with his own power and his own resources. And he acts in a way that he thinks will bring people around him. But but at the end of the day, what happens? Well, at the end of the day, even though he intervenes for his people, even though he kills this man who's beating this Egyptian, at the end of the day, he was acting on his own resources. Now, Stephen in Acts 7 tells us what was going on here. Acts 7, 23 to 25, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. And when he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And it was more than just not understanding. They rejected him. They would not follow him. They would not have this man, this man save them. He sought to rescue the people of Israel in his own power. Philip Ryken put it this way. Moses tried to save the people of Israel by his own works rather than by letting God save them by his grace. And as a result, he ends up a murderer, and he ends up without a country, and without a people, and without a home. He had failed. A third observation. Every believer is like Moses, a mixture of faith and failure. In many ways, his story is our story. He was able to turn his back on the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to the reward he would have in Christ. That's tremendous faith. It was a good thing for him to side with the people of God. That's tremendous spiritual strength. And, and by faith, when we are looking to the Lord, we're looking to his help, we can do wonderful things. 
God can strengthen us. We can conquer the fear of man and, and speak with our lost family member or neighbor or friend about the gospel and share Christ with them because by faith we're looking to God for his help. And we can conquer sin in our lives and we can live in integrity before God and man. And what a blessing it is to live with integrity before God and man and be able to lay down at the end of the day with a clear conscience before God, grateful for his grace. We can serve others around us, loving them with the very love of God, Christ fellowship. That's what we're called to do. Not stir up our best efforts, but no, let Christ live his life through us and love other people through us. We can endure hardship as good soldiers of Christ Jesus because that's what uh, following Christ in a fallen world looks like. It looks like enduring hardships as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. But you know, the reality is that we're also weak. Why? Because we often lack faith in God, don't we? It's so easy for us to follow Moses's tendency here to rely on our own resources, our own strength, and our own intelligence. But but when we do, we fail, and we fail quickly. It happens. Because sin remains in us, the best of Christians is a mixed bag. There's still much dross mixed with the gold. We're like Nebuchadnezzar's statue that had the feet that were mixed with both clay and iron. We have deep moments of faith, and we have many moments of foolish self-reliance. And the application is that by God's grace, we need to learn to walk by faith, which means we need to have a moment-by-moment trust in God, that we're looking to Him throughout the day. Even when we begin some new task, we're looking ahead to Him It was amazing faith that Moses looked ahead to the reward in Christ and forsook the pleasure of Egypt to suffer with God's people. But then Moses had to learn a lesson that we must all learn, and that is apart from God, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And nothing just means that. It means absolutely nothing of spiritual significance, nothing that would bring glory to God. Moses looking to Christ is strong. Moses, when he stops trusting in Christ, he's weak. He's left to himself. And that's how it is for us as well. When we begin to live in our own power, we quickly fail. We have a sweet, quiet time with the Lord. And five minutes later, we find ourselves sinfully shouting at our children. We've left the Lord behind. It happens. We give into the temptation of sexual immorality yet again, even though we have promised God that we will never look at those images again. We wander through the day grumbling and complaining, and we don't even think about it. And we're grumbling and complaining because our lives are not exactly the way we want them to be. What's going on? Well, we're doing what we can do. And what can we do? Well, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we fail. And so, if we're to live well, we must develop this spiritual discipline of living moment by moment by an active faith in Christ. And I don't know any better way to do that than to discipline myself, and I'm still pathetic at it, and I'd appreciate your prayers, that when I'm going to move to do a new task, that I would stop and pray before I do it. And that I would just submit myself to the Lord and have that be a pattern in my life. And I think that would be a good pattern in all of our lives, that we would stop and begin to discipline ourselves to look to the Lord moment by moment as we live our days and then watch Christ live his life through us. When we look to Jesus, we are both strong and safe. John Newton said this about that. He said, we are never more safe and never have more reason to expect the Lord's help than when we are most sensible 
that we can do nothing without him. Having failed in Egypt in verse 15, Moses is alone, sitting by a well without a country as a failure. But you know, he wasn't alone, was he? No, God still had good work for Moses to do. And our God is the kind of God that he uses failures to accomplish his perfect purposes. And that's what we're going to see. Look, next, second point, a restless wanderer, verses 16 to 22. A restless wanderer. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when they returned to their father Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man. And he gave him his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Verse 15, we see that Moses had escaped to Midian. Midian was a, a part of the Arabian East. Uh, it was a desert region in the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, it was a, a desert region where there was not much vegetation. It was kind of a difficult place to make a life. But there were people there. The Midianites were there, and they, they eked out their existence as they moved all of their property and their flocks from place to place, living a nomadic lifestyle. One of the Midianites was a man named Ruel. We learn in Exodus 18 later on that he also goes by the name of Jethro, and Jethro had seven daughters. And he sent them on a task. The task was to get water. So they're all going there. This is something that they're normally doing. But notice where they go. They just happen to go to the well where Moses is sitting. And here we again, once again, we see God's providence come into play in the way that he brings all the pieces together to accomplish his perfect purposes. He's doing that once again, and he is good through his providence. And now Moses, who is a homeless wanderer, is going to find a home because our God is so kind. In verse 17, we see that when Jethro's daughters arrive, they're confronted by some shepherds who drove them away. It's possible that this was an ongoing kind of event, something they just had to put up with in this difficult lifestyle. But then Moses, who they think of as an Egyptian, certainly from the way he's you know, speaking and, and dressed, he intervenes. It's very clear that Moses is someone who cannot endure injustice, and that's a good thing. He was a man of character. He hated it when the weak preyed upon the strong. And so he uses his military training and runs the shepherds off, and he rescues Jethro's daughter. But notice that he does more than that. Notice that he's also something of a gentleman. And he waters their flocks for him. He is a prince in Egypt. But notice that Moses was not arrogant. He was not above serving other people. He understood that it was his role also to, uh, to have the strong or for the strong to protect the weak. And that's a good thing for us to consider. Young men in particular, that's a good thing for you to consider this morning. Because we live in a culture that by and large has, has lost this. So let me speak to you. You are growing up in a culture that has largely abandoned the idea of chivalry. The idea that men should serve and protect women. Uh, it's tragic. Our culture, with its vaunted wisdom, mocks anyone who speaks of chivalry, who speaks of men protecting women, and then we are stunned and flabbergasted at the amount of abuse and human trafficking that is staining the soul of our nation. That's what's happening. But in this passage, we see that chivalry, being brave, courteous, and protective of women, 
is a good thing. This was a good and godly thing for Moses to do. It was right for him to intervene. It was right for him to protect them. And young men, you have the same responsibility. And the culture may hate you for it, but you have the same responsibility to protect the weak. And that includes women who the Bible describes as the weaker vessel because physically they are not as strong as men. This is important. This is important. It is important, young men, that you would understand your role to be protectors of women, not in a proud, arrogant way, but in a humble and serving way. In that way, you're going to be honoring women who are made in God's image. And in that way, you're going to be glorifying God. Well, with Moses' help, the seven daughters of Jethro, they finished their assignment quickly. They returned home. Moses is, or Jethro is surprised that they got home so quickly. Uh, and he asked, how, how did it happen? You know, perhaps they often had trouble with these shepherds, took them a long time. Well, well, then they tell him what happened. This Egyptian man stood up for us. And he not only did that, but he watered the flocks. And so Jethro asked this logical question. So where is he? Uh, why did you leave this man behind? And here we see the kindness of God once again, because Moses is alone. Moses is feeling his failure. He is homeless. But God, and I think this is important to hear, God has a heart for lonely people. He cares for lonely people. It's very easy to sit here in a, in a room like this and be very lonely. And God has a heart for lonely people. And praise God for that. He gave Moses a new home. And God's tender love for the lonely and outcast is just another aspect of his glory. Listen to, listen to God's glory in Psalm 113, verses 5 to 9. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap in order to seat them with nobles, with the nobles of his people. He gives the childless woman a, ho- a household, making her the joyful mother of children. Hallelujah. So this is what happens. Verse 21 and 22, Moses establishes a new life in Midian. It's a life that will last another 40 years. He has a wife now, Zipporah, and Zipporah bears him a son. And Moses names the son Gershom, saying, I've been a resident alien in a foreign land. Now, if you've lived overseas for any period of time, you, you can resonate something with what Moses is saying here. Missy and I felt this when we lived in Turkey for a few years. It doesn't matter how good your language is. It doesn't matter how good your ability to kind of understand the culture is. Uh, if you live in a foreign culture, you are never a from here. You are always a come here. In the deepest sense, you are not at home. It's not your home. And I think that by naming his son Gershom, Moses is expressing that sense of longing for home. Most especially, a sense of longing for being among his own people who are the people of God. Even though God gives him a family, Moses is still a restless wanderer. And he shepherds Jethro's flocks in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Now, there's there's an an awful lot that we could say, but let me make three brief observations. First, God God is good to believers who fail. And that is tremendous, tremendous news for all of us this morning. God is good to believers who fail. It's encouraging. Look at how he cares for servant Moses. Moses had failed spectacularly through self-reliance. As a result, Moses is alone, but God doesn't abandon Moses. Notice that God ministers to Moses. God's like the the good Samaritan who's binding up Moses' wounds here, caring for him and providing him with a, a new home, a new family. 
And God is good to us when we fail as well. And perhaps this week for you has been one of failure. And you come here this morning with a sense that you failed. Perhaps you walked in pride towards someone this week. And as a result, your relationship with them is damaged. Perhaps you allowed bitter thoughts to hassle you this week. And as a result, your joy is completely gone. Perhaps you gave into laziness at work. And you're aware that you haven't served the Lord Christ in the way that you should. In some ways, or in many ways, all of us have failed this week. So what hope is there for us? Uh, What hope is there for those who fail? Well, the hope is God, who is kind to people, to his people when they fail. God never abandons his people. Instead, God works in their lives to bring them to repentance, and God does good to them. He blesses them and he helps them. So if you failed this week, you don't have to run from God because he's not angry at you. And he's not angry at you because he's poured out all of his wrath on Christ. And that means there's no more wrath for you. That means you can turn from your sin and you can go to him and you can seek his help and you can find help in him even at this very moment. And this God who is kind to failures will be kind to you just as he's been kind to me countless times and to all of us countless times. Actually, when you think about the goodness of God towards failing people, you get to the very heart of Christianity. What is Christianity about? At at, at its heart, Christianity is this message that God is a God who is good to people who have failed. That God is a God who has provided a savior for people who have failed to live for him and have sinned against him. And the Bible is very straightforward. The Bible teaches that all of us were created by God. We were made in his image. That's why nothing in this world will ever satisfy us. You can think just having a little more will satisfy you, friend. It will never satisfy you. You were not made for the things of this world. You were made for God. But even though we were made for him, our first parents sinned and we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature that instead of putting God at the center of our heart and on the throne of our heart and orienting our lives towards him and finding joy in him, instead we replace him with ourselves and we turn in on ourselves and we make our small and short lives as much as we can about making ourselves as happy as possible for as long as we can until we are too old to enjoy this life anymore and then we die. And that is the tragic reality of what it means to live without God in the world. You have to have a God. Friend, you just replace the true God with yourself. And we've all done it. We've all done it. Everyone sitting here has done exactly that same thing. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there is no one who can stand before God and boast and say, I have done enough good to be welcomed in your presence. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not try harder, work harder, Be more Christian-y, read your Bible, pray, go to church. That's not the Bible. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is this. God is a God who is kind to people who fail. God is a God who's kind to sinners. And the way he has demonstrated his kindness is even though we deserve his just wrath forever and ever in hell, he instead has sent his son, the eternal son of God, became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus never failed. In word, in thought, in deed, in heart, motive, he always passed the test perfectly. Why? Not because he needed righteousness, but because we needed righteousness. We needed a perfect life. Where are we going to find it? It's not going to be found through being religious people. We fail at that. 
Where are we going to find a perfect life? It must be given to us as a gift. And that's what Christ was doing. He was living the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. And then his great mission was not only to live a perfect life, but it was to lay that life down on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And on the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now the the message is proclaimed to you this morning. If you will turn from your sin, if you will turn from your rebellion against God, and instead you will welcome Christ and you will confess him as Lord, and you will turn from your sin and trust in him and him alone is the one who will save you, you will be saved, which is to say, which is to say all of your sins will be forgiven. All of them forgiven. And Christ's righteousness will cover you Ah, as a robe. And when God looks at you, he will no longer see your failure. There will be no wrath for you. He will only see Christ's perfect righteousness, and he will be filled with love and acceptance and welcoming for you forever and ever and ever. You will search high and low for a better philosophy. But friends, it's not a philosophy. It is the truth. And we offer to you this morning, and we we appeal to you this morning, trust in Christ. You're never going to hear any better news than that in your life. Trust in Christ and do that this morning, and God will welcome you. We pray that you will do that even now. Good news. There's a second observation. God is not in a hurry to accomplish his purposes. Now, we're in quite a hurry, aren't we? We live in a culture that's moving a mile a minute. We are moving fast all the time. We often don't know why we're moving so fast. And we expect God to work in our lives at precisely the same speed that we think he should. Our God, though, is not like us. Our God is perfectly wise. And God has a different speed, and his speed is always perfect. And he is working out his perfect purposes in our lives. Isn't it amazing to think about? You read that in Psalm 113. He, he has to stoop to look at heavens and earth, but then he cares for the individual orphan and widow and friend. He cares for you and me like that. And he stoops to work in our lives at a perfect pace, bringing out his perfect plans each and every day. Moses would have never signed up for 40 years of preparation in Egypt, followed by 40 years of preparation in the wilderness. He would have never signed up for that. But you see, that was God's perfect pace and God's perfect plan for Moses' life. That he would spend two years of preparation for every one year of actual fruitful ministry and successful service. God's pace and agenda was different, but it was good. So think about what God accomplished over the 40 years while Moses is in the wilderness. What did God accomplish? First, he was working out his sovereign plans among the nations. He's individually focused and he is nationally focused. And he's working out his sovereign plans among the nations. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham that judgment would fall upon the Canaanite nations who were in the promised land when their sins had reached its full measure, and while Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness, those sins were continuing to mount towards their full measure, and the time would come. 
For 40 years, God taught Moses how to shepherd sheep. That's something he needed to learn because soon he would be shepherding God's flock in the wilderness. God was working on Moses in other ways for 40 years. He taught him about the desert of Midian. He wouldn't need that because he was going to lead the people through the desert for 40 years. And most especially, what was God doing? He was working on Moses in this way. He was teaching Moses to be nothing. He was teaching Moses to be humble. Moses needed to realize that he was nobody so that God could use him because God will not share his glory with anyone. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. If we would, Christ Fellowship Church, if we would be used by God, we have to learn the exact same lesson. We have to learn to be nothing. We have to be willing to be weak. That terrifies people in our culture. They have to keep a, a good face. They can't be weak. They have to keep a good We have to learn to be weak, which is to say to be who we are. And at that point, we will be prepared to be used by God to accomplish his purposes. And God's strength will shine through our weakness So brother or sister, if you feel like God is moving too slowly in your life, be encouraged and trust in him. His timing is often slower than ours is. His timing is always perfect. He will accomplish his perfect purposes and he's working on you. And you may not understand what he's doing right now, but you will understand one day when we know fully, even as we have been fully known. There's a third, applica- or third observation. It is good for God's people to be homesick. It is good for God's people to be homesick. I do believe that's what Moses is expressing when he names his son Gershom. He says, I have been a, a stranger. I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. He realized he wasn't home. He realized he wasn't among his people. And it impacted him. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we're not home. This world is not our home. And it's right for us to acknowledge that. And it's right for us to acknowledge that we are strangers and aliens in the world. And, and frankly, the closer you get to Jesus, the more strange uh, and dissatisfying this world will feel. And you'll realize more and more, I, I'm not home here. And it's good and right for us to acknowledge that. And it's good and right for us to be homesick, which is to say it is good and right for us to long for heaven to think about it, and to ask the Lord Jesus to come quickly and to make life decisions based not on the next 20 years, but the next 20,000 years. What's going to matter then? So let's be patient on our journey home. Verses 16 to 22, we see that Moses was a restless wanderer for 40 years in Midian. Now, verses 23 to 25, a third point, a compassionate savior. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. It's very interesting as you read through verses 20, uh, verse 11 to verse 22 that those verses are all about Moses. 
Uh, He's the subject of most of those sentences. His name is mentioned explicitly some six times there. But then when you get to verses 23 to 25, there's this massive shift that occurs and Moses completely goes away. And now God, Yahweh, the Holy One, he takes center stage. Uh, God rises at this point to rescue his people. In verse 23, the first part, after a long time, 40 years is a long time. When you look back on it, it doesn't seem so long. But when you're going through it, it's a long time. An entire generation grew from childhood to to middle age under the lash in Egypt during that time. But then the king of Egypt died after a long time. And it was not clear entirely from this verse, but it's very, very possible that the people of Israel were hopeful that with the death of the king, a new administration would come in perhaps a kinder, gentler administration towards them. But if they were hoping that, soon their hopes were dashed because the brutality, it continued. But then notice that something did change. It wasn't the circumstances of the people that changed. It was their heart condition before God and their willingness to cry out to God. They finally began to despair of their slavery and they groaned because of their difficult labor. But they did more than groan. They began to pray. They groaned because of the difficult labor and their cry for help because of the difficult labor did what? It ascended to God. Here you have a people who come to the end of themselves and now they are crying out for help and look what happens when his people begin to pray in verse 24 and 25. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob and God saw the Israelites And God knew. God responds in four different ways. He hears. Praise God that he hears prayer. He remembers his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls to mind, as it were, his commitment to this particular group of people. He saw the Israelites, meaning he had intimate knowledge of precisely what they were facing. And he knew, and that word knew there is important. It's actually the the knowledge that's spoken of between a, a husband and his wife. There's intimacy here. And it also speaks of a determination and a concern and a willingness to help God knew, which is to say God was going to act. Now notice in verse 11, Moses goes out and observes the people. What is Moses able to do? Nothing. But now God goes out and observes the people. And who is God? He's the mighty one of Israel. He's the one who is mighty to save. One final observation this morning. Prayer changes everything. So often, we are like the people of Israel in this passage. We're suffering, but we're prayerless. We're trying to figure out our problems. We're looking at our resources, our bank accounts, our health insurance, our relationships. We're trying to figure out how to help ourselves, how to press on, how to muscle through. What we need to do is we need to pray. And we need to know that when we pray, we're bringing into the circumstance the almighty God of eternity, the God who sees, and the God who remembers the covenant that he has made with us through Christ. There's relationship there, brother or sister. God's made a covenant with you in Christ. He's concerned about you for that reason. He sees our suffering. He knows and he cares for us. Now, that does not mean that our situations will change immediately. Remember, God's pace is often slower than ours, but it's always perfect. 
But it does mean that as soon as we pray, we're like Daniel praying in Daniel chapter 10. As soon as he begins to pray, his prayers ascend to heaven and heaven begins to act. And in God's time, salvation comes. And brothers and sisters, we can know that in God's time, salvation will come. He will help his people. He has never, ever failed to help any of his people. And that's why we pray. J.C. Ryle says, Prayer is the mightiest weapon that God has placed in our hands. It is the best weapon to use in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every trouble. It is the key that unlocks the treasury of promises and the hand that draws forth grace and help in time of need. It is the silver trumpet that God commands us to sound in all our necessity. And it is the cry he has promised always to listen to, just as a loving mother listens attentively to the voice of her child. So Christ's fellowship, let's be a people who pray and who trust in God to act in his good time. Well, let's, let's conclude. After six years of laborious ministry, God did perform his promises for Adoniram and Ed and Ann Judson. Through their ministry, they saw literally thousands of Burmese come to faith in Christ. Ultimately, Judson himself became known to the Burmese as Jesus Christ's man. And that's a good name. It's a good name. After 80 years of hard preparation, Moses was finally ready for God's blessing on his ministry. He was ready to be nothing so that God may be all in him. And may God teach us that lesson, that we would be nothing so that God may be all in us. And let's pray.